Hello, good evening, good day, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode one forty-two. I hope you're all doing very well. And as always, we have a whole lot of questions that we're going to discuss. Uh, questions that you all have asked in the comments and elsewhere. But as always, before that, let me greet you all and see who all is there with us on the live chat. I can see auspicious doomsday, Tathagat, Khushi, Rani. Deepak, Divyanchu, Nikhil, The Landmark, Venkat Reddy, R242, Manohar, Daddy Jong, Tejas, Pranav, Max, Renso, Yuvraj, Aditya, Roshan, Siddhant, Mazar, Fatty, Just8, IPs10, Pranay, Bhanu, Chetan, Harsh, Shubham, Tanmay, Ramesh Chand, Pavan, Durga, Herbie on Wheels, Keshav, ex-KGB agent, Shaheen, Pankaj, Kumar Tyagi, Kishore, C4D2 Suman, Harsh Zaveri, Yo-Yo Gogo, Satish Siddhant, Never Satisfied, Akshay, Nandan, Ashwin, Shivansh, Rishav, Mango, Hindu, Sher Putin, Chiching, Vladimir Adityanath, Harvey Ropes, Aditi, Stone, 420, J Rana, The Prime Mover, Abhinav, Santanu, Mr. Jiga, Chad of India, Satvik, Sarthak, Dungar Singh Johan, Tathagat, Abhijit Chavda Sindhavad, uh, Raju Singh Azmanor, Om Naik, Zero, FBI, Sushma, Varun, Ajib Saladka, Chetan, Bhanu, Dadimir Adityanath, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you, and thank you so much for being on the show with uh, with me tonight, this wonderful, fine evening over here. So, with that done, uh, let us get into the questions, shall we? Let's get right into the questions, as always. Um Okay, what's the first question? Here's the first question. It's by a number of people. Ananta Dev, Tyagi, Grimzo, Bad, and Shaheen. How will the US midterm results affect India and the rest of the world? The US midterms is right around the corner. If the Republicans win the midterms now, how will it affect Ukraine? And what will the foreign policy be like towards India? Will it be a little bit better? And Shaheen says, what are your thoughts on the US midterm elections in 2022? How will their results impact India and the rest of the world's geopolitical... Uh, landscape. Yeah, good question. So let's see what the results are like. I mean, I discussed this yesterday on the uh, on the Indian Interest podcast. And let's see what the results are like. I mean, it was still not clear who's winning. Now it looks like the Demo- the Democrats may be winning the, the US Senate. Uh, so let's see what the results are like right now. Uh, yes, here we are. This is the current scenario. The Senate results, uh, officially, it's 48-48, Democrats 48, Democrats are in blue, and the Republicans are in red. You need 51 for a majority. So it looks, I mean, uh, in, in some places, I'm hearing that the Democrats are winning, but over here, it looks like it's still uh, not yet decided. So this is the situation in the U.S. Senate, which is the higher, uh, the upper house, and the lower house is the U.S. House of Representatives. It's 211 for the Republicans, 203 for the Democrats. So yeah, it's still not quite clear who's going to win the elections who's go, and, and which way it's going to go. It could be that the Republicans could have a thin, very thin majority in the House. And in the Senate, it could be either way. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in the House, it could be the Democrats who may... <laughs> the Republicans... The Reds are the Republicans in the House of Representatives. It could be the Republicans who would get most likely, possibly from what it looks like over here, a thin majority perhaps. And in the Senate, it could be the Democrats or the Republicans, we're not quite sure. So that's uh, the situation right now. So the question is obviously very good. Uh, uh, The question is, one second, let me 
yeah here we are so how will this results affect india and the rest of the world will it change the the us policy towards ukraine to change the foreign policy towards india how will this all impact the rest of the world and um, the geopolitical landscape so from the geopolitics perspective when we talk about the us foreign policy the us is the most powerful nation in the world it's the sole superpower and that's why anything that happens in the us is going to affect the world it's and and the us foreign policy is something that every nation in the world needs to keep a very close uh, watch on yes so um there are three scenarios one scenario is that uh, the republicans win the upper house the senate and the lower house which is uh, the house of representatives that seems unlikely but if that happens then there will be no impediment or obstacle towards the republican party for uh, framing any kind of legislation it wants and uh, governing the country as they want yeah so that is the optimum uh, result for the democrats for the ruling party the ruling party is the Demo- other democrats so if they win the upper house which is the senate and the lower house which is the uh, house of representatives then the democrats will have absolutely no impediment in ruling the country for the next 2 years any way they want and for f- framing any kind of legislation that they, w- that they want the other scenario is that uh, the democrats win the upper house the senate and the republicans win the lower house which is the uh, house of representatives which could make things very problematic for the democrats who are currently joe biden is a democrat yeah so it could make things difficult for them they will not be able to pass uh, any kind of legislation they want and it could essentially make joe biden a lame duck president who is ruling only in name but he cannot um, cannot get any legislation or any any policies passed yes because if the lower house is controlled by the republicans then they will not allow that to happen and if the republicans uh, win the lower house as seems kind of likely right now then they could uh, launch all kinds of investigations on the democrats especially uh, about the uh, us withdrawal from afghanistan which is a which is an interesting example it was a chaotic disastrous withdrawal from afghanistan yes and uh, they could also launch investigations into the conduct of joe biden himself and his son hunter biden so it could be very um, it could not be very nice it could be yeah that's a uncomfortable situation for the ruling party the democratic party so that's what happens if the democrats won, win the senate and the republicans win the house the third scenario is that the republicans win the senate and the house that's also a possibility uh, so if that happens it's going to be even worse for uh, joe biden and his democratic party yes because uh, in that case there, there will be all kinds of uh, problems cropping up for them and they will essentially joe biden will essentially be a completely totally ineffective and lame duck president so uh, now what does this mean for the world uh when it comes to us foreign policy it's typically the same more or less the same whether it's the republicans who are in power or the democrats more or less the same because much of the foreign policy the bulk of the foreign policy see the see the the core of the foreign policy is dictated from the pentagon not from the white house the white house will do certain things for instance when trump was president he launched this trade war against china and uh, so you will have some some effect from the white house but overall the the policy is run by the bureaucracy the foreign policy is run by the bureaucracy which resides in the pentagon uh, some people would call it the deep state or whatever they want to call it yeah so uh, typically whether the republic republicans are in power or the democrats the foreign policy remains more or less the same it's an imperialistic uh, 
foreign policy it's a hegemonic foreign policy it's its objective is to uh, sustain and preserve and and perpetuate the us supremacy and hegemony over the world yes protect the supply chains protect the infrastructure protect the uh, dollar as a reserve currency and wage wars wherever required in order to feed the military industrial complex all of that and no president would dare to go against that yes uh, so overall i think that it will not change even if let's say the the republicans are able to win the lower house and maybe even the upper house it will not really change the foreign policy too much the un us foreign foreign policy too much of course when it comes to uh, the presidency itself well historically in recent times like the past 2 3 decades the republicans have typically had a better approach towards india than the democrats so when we talk about republicans we are talking about people like donald trump like george w bush uh, that's the two that come to mind yeah and when we talk about democratic presidents we are talking about people like uh, barack obama and uh, right now we have uh, joe biden so right now joe biden is the president and the americans have not appointed a governor uh, i'm sorry an ambassador to india for nearly 2 years that position is lying vacant which is extremely strange because india is one of the major nations in the world yeah i mean nobody can deny that and it's an emerging power it's an emerging great power it's a significant nation now india in 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 global geopolitics in in economics and all that and yet the americans are are not willing to appoint an ambassador to such an important nation so that that kind of uh, shows it, it's it's designed to convey certain signals and messages to india yeah and to the world as well that they are not pleased with the way india is 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 conducting its business and the the way india i mean whatever policies uh, domestic foreign policies foreign policy economic policies etc india is pursuing the, the democrats are, are not happy with it and the us uh, uh, foreign policy state, state department is not happy with what's going on and and typically when you have a democratic president the the uh, approach towards india is a little bit harsher and it's a little bit less friendly it's a little bit colder it's a little bit more antagonistic and adversarial as opposed to when a republican president is in in the white house typically it's it's like a change of maybe 5 to 10% overall the foreign policy is more or less the same i mean when when mr modi was became prime minister in 2014 mr obama was the president of the us and mr modi was able to establish a very good relationship with obama yeah and things were going well and then when trump came to power mr modi was able to establish an even better relationship with mr trump right now i don't know what sort of relationship is there with mr biden it, it's very hard to tell what happens with mr biden but yeah that's how it is so and what about ukraine well i think even if the democrats lose the house or even the congress i don't think the foreign policy towards ukraine and russia will change much yeah so uh, so i don't think it's going to change much because like i said overall the foreign policy is dictated from the pentagon from the from the uh, unelected bureaucracy that that runs the foreign policy the state department these people are essentially there for life once they once they get in and uh, and that's how it is yeah so i don't think it's going to have much of a change much of a the the foreign policy is going to change much it is still going to stay more or less the same there is a significant amount of bipartisanship when it comes to the foreign policy the, the, the two parties the democrats and republicans they differ a lot and they are uh, they disagree a lot when it comes to domestic 
affairs, when it comes to domestic policy, gun control, abortion, women's rights, and, and, and whatnot, right? All those things. Uh, these are big issues when it comes to domestic policies and domestic politics, domestic issues. But when it comes to foreign policy, they are very more or less very much aligned, bipartisan uh, align, alignment when it comes to foreign policy. So I don't think it's going to affect India too much or the rest of the world too much, no matter what happens. But of course, if the Republicans uh, are able to take over the lower house, let's say, then they could uh, create a lot of trouble for Joe, Joe Biden and for the Democratic Party and the government. There could be government shutdowns like we saw in the past in the US, there could be investigations launched, like I said, which could be embarrassing or even damaging to the president and his family and to the Democratic Party, and a whole lot is going on. Uh, so even now, we're not entirely sure as to what direction this is going to take. Will the Democrats be able to win the Senate, the upper house? In, in some places, I hear that they've already won the upper house, but uh, when you look at the Google latest scorecard or whatever you want to call it, uh, it still says 48-48 uh, when it comes to the Senate. And the upper house is, uh, we have a Republican lead there. GOP 211 is opposed to Democrats 203. So it's still, uh, I would say, a little early to call. Maybe in a few days, we will have a better idea of what's happening. Until then, we will wait and watch, and I will certainly revisit this issue and and look at it with fresh eyes maybe by by next weekend when we have the next set of live streams so overall i don't think no matter what happen i think that no matter what happens it will not change us foreign policy much because the president is still a democrat and uh, the 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 um, pentagon still has its own views which don't change and overall there is bipartisan agreement when it comes to foreign policy so it's not going to change things too much Okay, Himanshu says, since you've spoken in your episode with Ranveer that Donald Trump's contribution to the US has been lowest when compared to his predecessors, predecessors, do you think he can still return to attain the top post once again after the Biden presidency term gets over? Nimit says, what are your views on the US midterm elections? Do you think this type of red wave can be seen in 2024 presidential election? Will Donald Trump do a comeback? So essentially, these two questions are about the future, the political future of Donald Trump. Will Donald Trump be able to run for presidency again in 2024? Will he declare his candidature? Will he throw his hat in the ring? And what else could happen? That's the question, right? Into that. Uh, about Donald Trump and his... One second. I am... Give me a second, please. I will get back into it right away. Once I can resolve the issue of the lag. We see this lag once in a while. Why is that? Let's look into it. One second. Is it better? Laggy, laggy. Come on. I think we're still lagging. We are still lagging or are, is, are we fine now? We are fine now. Buffering, buffering, and it's back on, on, on track. I think it's fine now. So the question, these two questions are about the political future of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is 
right now the the uh, the number one leader you could say in the Republican Party. And as of now, he's the most vocal, vociferous leader, even though he has been banned from, from Twitter and other social media platforms. He has created his own social media platform called Truth Social, and he is very much active there. And uh, yes, and he is positioning himself, or he is trying to position himself as the uh, as the uh, next Republican candidate for presidency. It is believed that he may announce his 2024 presidency, presidential candidacy very soon, maybe as early as this coming week, possibly. Yeah. So, uh, so what did I what did I discuss on 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 the beer biceps podcast with Rani, with Ranveer? I did say that tr- what I said was this. I said that Trump was not allowed to achieve anything. The entire political system seemed to be. You know, it it should it seemed like it was stacked up against him, and they they did not want him to be able to achieve anything. He wanted to build a wall. They did not allow him to build a wall. He wanted to do various other things, and he was not allowed to do any of those things. Right? His is even his own party seemed to at times be, you know, at cross purposes with him. And the reason for this is that he is not a politician. He is an outsider, an outsider who by who accidentally was able to succeed in politics because he was really because he's smart because he's intelligent and he was able to you know do what the other politicians could not and he was able to connect with the people and democracy actually worked for once <laughs> that's what happened and uh, uh, so that was the deal so he was not really allowed to achieve any of the things he wanted to achieve uh, now we have to understand what the situation with Donald Trump is. I spoke about this yesterday as well. What is going to happen to Donald Trump and what's going to happen to his movement, the MAGA movement, Make America Great Again? We have to understand something very clearly. This, the current, see, the question is about a red wave. There has been no red wave. Everybody was anticipating a massive red wave or red tsunami. The Republicans will swamp the Democrats and and gain a crushing massive majority in the lower house, in the upper house, in the Senate. This has not happened. It's still too early to call. If the Republicans do win, it's going to be with a razor thin majority, very small, tiny majority, which is not anywhere close to the 30, 40 seats uh, major uh, lead they, they were expecting to have. And the face of the campaign has been Donald Trump. He is the one big leader right now in the, in, in the Republican Party. And that's why this is a big setback for Donald Trump. This essentially is the third straight election in which Donald Trump has failed to perform to expectations, to his expectations and to the expectations of the the Republican Party. The 2018 midterm elections, when Donald Trump was president, in in those elections, the Republicans, the, the Democrats won the lower house. They gained more than 40 seats and the Republicans were able to retain the Senate. But the, the, the Democrats won the House and there was a setback for Donald Trump in 2018 when he was president. In 2020, he lost the presidency to Joe Biden. And he and, and the Republicans even won the House, the, the Senate. So there was a double setback for Donald Trump. And right now in the 2022 midterms, there is a possible, perhaps slim majority in the lower house and maybe in the Senate. It's still too early, I would say, to call. Yeah, and the U.S. elections are weird; they go on for days and days. The last two, three seats are not announced for many days, and they are announced till a little later. It's strange. It's a very strange electoral system. So these last three elections have been 
setbacks for Donald Trump. It's a hat trick of, of setbacks. He has come up short each time, which does not bode well for him. Yeah. So Trump is still positioning himself as the prime candidate for the 2022-2024 presidential election. He may announce his candidacy soon. Yeah. But there are certain some challengers on the horizon. There is the, the governor of California, uh, governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who could be, uh, who could be uh, Trump's top challenger for the 2024 nomination. And there's another guy called um, uh, what's his name, the governor of Maryland, Hogan, Larry Hogan, who also is by in in some quarters is being uh, spoken about as a potential outsider who could could challenge Donald Trump. Yeah. So that's what's happening. Uh, it's still too early to say if Donald Trump will be able to, uh, first of all, secure the Republican candidacy for president. And even if he's able to do that, which is going to be difficult, but even if he's able to do that, will he be able to uh, win the presidency in 2024? We don't know. So the, the questions, there are multiple questions. First of all, who's going to lead the Republicans in 2024 in the presidential race? We don't know. Trump would want to do that. He really wants to do that. He's most likely going to announce very soon. But there are challenges to him because he has not performed well. The second question is, who's going to lead the Democrats in the next presidential race? Joe Biden is the sitting president. It's it's He's only into his first term. So usually, I mean, typically, uh, the sitting president would run for the next term, for a second term. But Joe Biden is, well, people are raising questions about him. And it's very visible that he is in cognitive decline. So it's possible, perhaps, that he may not run for president in 2024. Will Kamala Harris run for president? Well, she's turned out to be a, as big a disaster as, as, as uh, Biden himself. Yeah, she has not uh, exhibited any presidential characteristics or any signs of significant intelligence, I would say. So that's a problem for the for the Democrats themselves. What's going to happen? Yeah. The other question is, what happens? Will will Biden become a lame duck president, or president only in name, if the Republicans Republicans are able to uh, capture the lower house or maybe even the Senate? So we have all these questions upon us right now. Uh, so that's where we are. Uh, there is no guarantee that Donald Trump will be able to secure the Republican candidacy in 2024 for for the in the presidential race. And even if he's able to, we don't quite know. Who's who? If he is able to do that, who will be who? Who will he be up against? There is a dearth of leadership in the Democratic Party. Will Hillary Clinton come back for the seventy-eighth time as, as for, to run for president? <laughs> we don't know. Uh, and there seems to be a, a leadership vacuum in the in the in the Republican Party as well. I did speak about Ron DeSantis and Larry Hogan. There could be some other people as well. But yeah, there's there's uh, there's nobody who like stands out apart from Donald Trump. He has got this big personality. He's been president before. He's a very successful businessman. So he still could be in prime position, but we don't know. But the last three elections have been bad for Donald Trump. Nobody can gloss over that fact. So there, th this is the situation. All these factors are there right now. It's still not clear. It's still two years away. Maybe in six months, maybe by next week we'll know, perhaps, if Donald Trump is... is uh, going to throw his hat in the ring and maybe in a few weeks, maybe in a few months will the situation will become a little bit more clear as to what are Joe Biden's plans, what are Kamala Harris's plans and who's going to stand up against Donald Trump within his own party to secure the 2024 presidential nomination. This is the situation, very complicated, 
uh, it's it's if you're an outsider it's fun to watch yeah <laughs> so that's how it is i mean people who love elections and who are into the electoral politics it's it's great for them it's great fun for them i look at it from a geopolitical angle so yeah i so that's what i'm keeping an eye on it's it's obviously important for the entire world what happened in the us so we're going to keep watching this closely yes okay the next question is uh, something i took yesterday i spoke about this yesterday but uh, maybe in case some of you have not seen it we will discuss this again rajat kushagra sumit and the questions are why did putin back away from the kherson region could it be a deception by him as you say nobody can tell what's going on in his head could there be a bigger plan at play Uh, russian army leaving kherson is a defeat or is it a strategic movement by powerful and smart general sergey surovikin who led the syria war and proved his himself in the past russia confirmed that it pulled out of the of kherson in ukraine certainly that doesn't indicate a russian defeat as shown by the media but doesn't it open a path to crimea as for ukraine as it would become easier for ukraine to launch an offensive like the one in which they blew up a section of the crimean bridge these are the questions so we do know that the russians are withdrawing in in the are in the process of withdrawing from kherson or have perhaps withdrawn entirely uh, we're still not quite sure let's go to the map and see where is kherson yes uh just give me a second i'm going to put the map on the screen and uh, lead you all to the region of interest right now the region that we are discussing kherson map here we are map is here so we know where india is we go westwards west 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 a uh, temporary nation afghanistan iran iraq turkey and north of turkey we have the black sea and north of the black sea we have ukraine novorossiya ukraine whatever you want to call it now where is kherson kherson is in the south of ukraine this here is this the port city not, not the port city but it's quite close to the black sea it's the city of kherson it sits on the right bank or the west bank of the great river dnieper the dnieper river is the i think the fourth largest Euro, uh, european river and it's uh, the river which on which the city of kiev is also founded so kherson kherson is also the name of an oblast or province which is one of the four provinces that russia recently annexed after its referendums and people have uh, yeah and they annexed these Uh, the russians annexed these four provinces which means that they became part of russia they call it reunification uh, others would call it annexation depends on your perspective uh, but it's now officially f- from the russian perspective become part of russian territory it's been reunified with russia which means it comes under the russian nuclear umbrella and i had speculated that maybe that could cause problems if somebody makes a, a move on russian territory it may be a red line that the, that the russians do not want anybody to cross and that could lead to nuclear conflict well clearly clearly not the case the russians are withdrawing from the northern and western part of the dnieper river they're withdrawing from that part of kherson province what does it mean let's let's look at a different image to make things a little clearer uh let's do uh, let's take a look at a different image of the same region uh it's a little small let me embiggen it a little no nah, i think this is fine okay so now you can see where kherson is you can see the the northern the western region and west of the river that we are talking about that's where the russians are withdrawing from or uh, have withdrawn from what does it mean what does it mean 
what does it indicate does it indicate that russia is losing is this a disastrous setback and the beginning of the end for russia does it mean the tide has turned is that what's happening does it mean that mr putin has lost face he is is this, does it, is this, is this indicative of a loss of prestige and loss of reputation for mr putin does it mean that there are going to be knives out in russia for mr putin because leaders cannot fail leaders are not allowed to fail in russia or how should India interpret this? How should Russia interpret this? How should the world interpret it? These are the questions. These are the questions that we are dealing with. These are the questions that we are grappling with, right? So there are a number of possibilities. So we have we, we don't know what's happening because we don't have we are not privy to the to the classified information and the thought process that's going on behind the scenes in the Russian top leadership in the in the armed forces. First of all, we have to understand this: these decisions. See, we don't understand that Mr. Putin is not a military commander. So he oversees military activities, but he doesn't decide exactly what happens. He has a grand a plan for, for Russia, for the future of Russia. And then the military, its job is to carry out strategic maneuvers, tactical maneuvers, grand strategic campaigns, in military theaters to make Mr. Putin's vision uh, become a reality, to make it a reality. So when the military, when the Russian military does certain things, it is approved by Mr. Putin, but the tactics and strategies are typically decided by the top leadership of the military in consultation with, with, with Mr. Putin. So there are three or four possibilities. One possibility, why is Russia withdrawing from this part of Kherson and, and, and giving up the city of Kherson? Does this, uh, does this mean they are losing? So one possibility, and this is the least likely possibility. This first possibility is that this is a nasty trap that the Russians are setting for NATO. So what we are witnessing in Ukraine is a proxy war. It is between Russia and NATO. Ukraine is just the tool that NATO is using. Uh, Ukraine is being supplied with essentially unlimited uh, quantities of arms, ammunition, and whatnot. And the Ukrainians are waging total war. They're throwing unlimited numbers of, of men into the meat grinder of the war, and so on. So one possibility is that Russia is laying a nasty trap for NATO. They will withdraw. They will induce the enemy to come into this region, and then maybe they will do something nasty to them. Yeah, so this is a tried and tested tactic in warfare, you know, the false retreat. So that is one possibility. I think it's the least likely possibility, but we should keep that in mind. You know, from from the uh, this is the logic of strategy. So this is the least likely possibility. The second possibility, which is a, a somewhat more likely, is that there are diplomatic negotiations going on. See, diplomacy happens behind the scenes. Diplomacy always happens in secret. It's only when an agreement is reached that diplomatic statements are made publicly, especially between adversaries and enemies. So maybe there are secret negotiations going on along through back channels between Russia and the West, between Russia and NATO. And maybe there is, there is talk of a ceasefire. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe there is talk of a ceasefire, and maybe that ceasefire could fructify, could, could be finalized during the G20 summit, or maybe after the G20 summit, soon after, perhaps, maybe. So, in that case, if there is some such secret negotiations happening through back through diplomatic back channels, then maybe one of the prerequisites for a ceasefire 
is that Russia gave up some token territory, maybe the Kherson, the Kherson city in north of the uh, west of the Dnieper River, in exchange for the uh, for NATO agreeing to to ceasefire. That is a hypothetical possibility. I am not aware of what's really happening. I am just saying that this could be a possibility. This is more likely than Russia setting a trap for NATO. So the trap theory is the least likely theory, the least likely possibility. Higher than that, there is more probability of this being some kind of uh, prerequisite for an impending ceasefire. Yeah. So you do this and then we will finalize the ceasefire. That could be the deal, possibly. All right. Here we go once again. Do I... <laughs> one second. Let me fix this. It's... Okay. I think we are... Yeah, we're back. So the second possibility is that there could be an impending ceasefire, and this is a prerequisite for that. The third possibility is that uh, this is indeed a setback for Russia. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's working fine now. Yeah. So the third possibility is that this is indeed a setback for Russia. Their military has been forced to withdraw from this place, and maybe they want to regroup in the southern part of the river and stay there for the winter and play the long game. So the long game could last one year, one year, two years. You know, the, the conflict would drag on for a long time. So these are the three possibilities that I can think of. In case the Russians have been driven back because of superior uh, military activities from Ukraine and NATO, in that case, let's go back to the image to, 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 to see the image. Yes, let's, let's take a look at the image. So in case the Russians have actually been militarily driven back by force and they have been forcibly evicted from west of the river, in that case, what we will witness most likely is that the Ukrainian forces or NATO forces are going to try and cross the river themselves and try to make a move on Crimea itself. And they are, the Crimea, the province of Crimea is, I believe, already in range of Ukraine's long-range long artillery. So we could witness bombardment, artillery bombardment of Crimea, of the Crimea region. And we could possibly witness the, the NATO forces trying to cross the river and try to liberate the whole of the Kherson province. So in case this is a military setback for Russia, then we will see this happening very soon. So if this happens, then we know that the Russians have actually lost this part uh, through military force. If this is a secret negotiation, secret agreement, then we will soon possibly see a ceasefire. So that will validate the second theory, that this is a, a, a prerequisite for a ceasefire. And if there is a disaster for Ukraine in the next coming days in, in Kherson, then it could validate the theory that this was a nasty trap set by the Russians. So these are the three possibilities. This is what I discussed yesterday. We still have don't we still don't have more clarity on the situation. I will keep monitoring the situation because it is of, uh, of importance and of interest to all of us. Yes. So I'm going to keep monitoring this but this is where we are so i hope this uh, makes things a little little clearer for everybody this is where we are right now next question okay bye bye says will BRICS be the next un and bobby says this was always about the new world order the nv nwo and the challenge to the old order 
BIS, Bretton Woods, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, Central Bank, Swiss of Currency, etc. All these systems created by the West West 70 years ago. One is Bitcoin, the other is BRICS, and there might be more out there. What do you think? BRICS is definitely a challenge to the existing WIMS-based world order, the rules-based world order, the imperial system that has been constructed by the West, which essentially means uh, the regime that is run out of Washington, Washington D.C. in the Pentagon. Yes, this was all created in 1945 with the Bretton Woods Agreement, which made the U.S. dollar the world's reserve currency. Everybody agreed to this, and that's been the financial, the backbone of the financial financial system ever since. So, uh, BRICS. So, this is what we called the the old order. Yeah, the the U.S. rules based rules based world order, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, BRICS is definitely a challenge to this. So BRICS could represent, like Bobby says, the new world order or an aspirational new world order, a bifurcation of the system, a new system which will exist initially in parallel, which will attempt to exist in parallel to the US imperial system. Yes. Um, yes so it is definitely that. And it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do because, uh, you know, if you try to challenge the, the, giant, the mighty superpower, there's going to be retaliation. There's going to be massive retaliation. So the BRICS nations are going to have to tread very carefully. Lots of nations want to join BRICS. The Saudis want to join BRICS. That is a very, very audacious and very dangerous move by Mohammed bin Salman because his nation was essentially created by the British to, to further British geopolitical and imperial ambitions. Yes, And then it was after the British ceded, uh, ceded the crown to the Americans, the Saudis became essentially a US client state. And the House of Saud owes its existence and continued uh, reign, rule, prosperity, whatever, to the West. So, attempting, signaling its intention to join BRICS is a very dangerous thing to do from Mohammed bin Salman's perspective. But he has done that. Well, kudos to him and I wish him well. Uh, one, we know history. We know what happens to uh, uh, to clients of the US who, who, who try to break free of the US. We have seen various such uh, examples in various parts of the world. One such example, which is not very old, is that of uh, Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein al-Takriti. We know what happened to him. So, Mr. Mohammed bin Salman needs to be very, very careful. Yeah. So all of this is definitely an attempt to set up a parallel system, a more fair system, a system that is more equitable, perhaps. And, uh, you know, it will give, it will offer an alternative to countries that want to break free of the imperial system. So this is definitely that Bitcoin is an, is an attempt to do that as well, you know, to break free of the hegemony of the centralized banks which control the money. So your money essentially is owned by them. That's how it is. Yeah. So if you have Bitcoin, it's entirely decentralized. It's permissionless. And uh, it offers you actual freedom. Uh, not Ethereum, not other cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin does. But now we are seeing that crypto is crashing. It may, it may be being made to crash. And uh, yeah, we, we are seeing these, these tussles being, you know, the initial initial jousting happening right now uh, in the coming years this will most likely intensify 
So yes, the BRICS is the new world order. It's an attempt to create a new world order or a parallel world order, a bifurcation of the global system, you know, in which everything will be, will become bifurcated, the financial system, the supply chains, and so much more. There's so much more energy, materials, agriculture, transportation infrastructure, uh, manufacturing, like I said, supply chains, and so many other things could become bifurcated if BRICS is able to... Uh, succeed so many nations seem to find it attractive algeria wants to join BRICS. algeria is one of the major oil i mean gas suppliers of the world uh, indonesia may apply to join BRICS next week during the g20 summit uh, turkey seems to have expressed its uh, desire to perhaps explore being a part of BRICS. argentina uh, and many other nations yeah so it's an interesting time. So this is all definitely an attempt to create a parallel system, a parallel new world order. And let's see how it goes. Let us see how it goes. Right. Once again, we are buffering. Why does this happen? And it is so annoying. Man. Let me see. permanent solution to this but i think it's getting better yes it's better okay the next question is also about BRICS. it's from india's perspective gotham anand india is in groups like the sco the shanghai cooperation organization BRICS, etc and at the same time we are also part of groupings such as the quad this balancing act foreign policy of india while also focusing on our interests is feasible and giving good results as of now do you think it is practical in the long run as india's stature rises geopolitically Till what time can we manage to be a part of both the opposite camps of global geopolitics this is a good question so india is indeed a member of the shanghai cooperation organization which is a grouping that's essentially led by the chinese and also the the russians so india china russia are part of the sco other nations as well brics is also the core group is india russia china plus south africa plus brazil and many other nations want to join so india is part of this alternative grouping which is an alternative to the west to the western hegemony but india is also part of the quad so why is india doing this it's doing it for to, to safeguard its own national interest because china is a major threat to india china has been a major th threat to india since the 1950s when it uh, forcibly occupied and, and annexed tibet as long as india and china share a common border whether it's demarcated or not india and china are going to be adversaries and rivals especially when the border is undemarcated and especially when china has become so massively powerful economically you know uh five times the size of india's economy right now that's what the gdp is like approximately five times the size and obviously their military will also be massive they have a lot of other issues geopolitically their military is not entirely concentrated on the india tibet border it's it's spread out but yes china is a major concern it's india's number one threat and because of that india is has chosen has opted to be a part of the quad grouping which is essentially india and the us and a couple of uh US satellites, which is Australia and Japan. Yes. So, uh, yes. And India also has excellent, not excellent, but good relations with the US. Um, 
India is giving what we what we would call issue based cooperation to the US. We are cooperating fully from the economic development perspective and uh, technology and all that. But we are giving issue based cooperation uh, when it comes to strategic strategic uh, affairs and geopolitics. So that's the kind of uh, relationship India and the US have nowadays. We are seeing that the US is once again supporting Pakistan. They have uh, you know that is a direct threat to India. Yeah, you support India's number two adversary militarily. You're essentially investing in India, India's future. You know, in, in bleeding India in the future. So that's the kind of relationship we have with the U.S. Now you cannot, and obviously we know that India has been purchasing arms systems like the S-400 system, like submarines, etc., from the Russians, from Russia, various aircraft, many other things. We may even be in on the verge of purchasing heavy strategic bombers from Russia. That's what one hears. Yeah, that's what the, you know, the grapevine tells us. So India is doing all this. The Americans are obviously not pleased about this, but they gave India the Katsa waiver when it came, comes to the S-400 system. If India goes ahead and purchase the, purchases the Russian uh, strategic heavy bomber, the White Swan bomber, that could be a whole different thing. So India is doing this very delicate balancing act vis-a-vis the US and the East. The East is India, China, Russia, essentially. Yeah. This is impractical in the long run. In the long run, India will have to choose a camp. Will it be on the side of Russia and China? China is an adversary. BRICS is essentially unviable in the long term as long as India and China have this adversarial relationship. The only way India and China will not have an adversarial relationship for some time is if the border is demarcated. The India-Tibet border is demarcated. Until that happens, unviable. Uh, yes, FBI seems to have joined the chat. Somebody is saying, <laughs> damn this. So we are buffering once again. Let me try and overcome that. Buffering, buffering, buffering. It's not better yet. Okay. Uh, yes, people are giving me technical advice to set the bitrate correctly. CIA in chat. I think it's getting better. It's getting better. It's getting better. It's better now. So, like I was saying, it is like I was saying, BRICS is not a viable coalition in the long run if India and China remain adversaries. And there is as uh, as far as we see right now, there is no major move or steps being taken for India and China to resolve the border issue. So in that case, it would be kind of unwise for India to throw its lot with BRICS, especially when China is, a, is the major economy in BRICS. That's dangerous. But once again, when it comes to the US and the West, they are now favoring Pakistan over India. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for India to throw its lot in with the US as well. 
So that is the conundrum, the dilemma that India is facing right now. I would say that India needs to to put it put its head down and work on the economy. India has to anyhow, somehow, anyhow, ensure that there are the next 10-20 years are years of peace. There is no major conflict, no major war. Yeah, do the balancing act anyhow and ensure that you reach at least uh, $10 trillion of GDP, annual GDP. Once you do that, uh, India will become a whole different beast and it will be difficult for even a nation like China to think about uh, needling India or try to trying to, you know, uh, play any mischief with India. So yeah, it's, it's a conundrum for India. BRICS is, I mean, we would like to see a, a parallel world order a new world order, a different set of rules as compared to the old, you know, the legacy uh, world order, the imperial world order of the US, the so-called rules-based system, the UN system and all that. We would like to see a a new thing come up. But as long as India and China have this relationship, bad relationship, it's not going to be long-term viable, viable in the long term. So yeah, that's where we are. And right now there are no right answers. Right now there are no right answers. So India has to essentially not rely on anybody. Nobody's going to come and save India if something goes wrong. India is essentially on its own. All nations are on their own. Some nations have their groupings. Like the US has a bunch of like 50, 60 vassal states that it can order to do whatever it wants. Uh, The Chinese have Pakistan. They had Pakistan. Pakistan is now in the US camp. So the Chinese have South Korea and they were trying to bribe various nations, but nobody trusts China anymore. China and Russia have this transactional relationship of which is kind of a cooperative relationship for now. But Russia does not trust China and neither does China trust Russia. So BRICS is India and Russia have a reasonable amount of trust. So as long as China is in BRICS, it's it's a problem and China refuses to behave. China itself has imperial ambitions of its own. So yeah, that is the problem which we are in right now from India's perspective and time will tell how it goes. The only thing for India is to rise. India has to anyhow ensure that it rises economically and stays peaceful for the next 10 years at least. Yeah, One could deal with Pakistan in a, in a variety of ways, but there should be no war with China or any other major nations for, the, for minimum the next 10 years. Then India will be in a good position to set its own rules. So that's that's the situation. Okay, Samarth says, in response to Israel's plan to open two agricultural centers of excellence in Jammu and Kashmir, Pakistan-backed terror group has warned of attacks targeting Israeli assets in the Union Territory. Despite India-US deteriorating deteriorating ties, India-Israel defense cooperation is increasing considering a rise in terror threats. Notably, there is a change in the Israeli leadership again. Yes, there is a change in the Israeli leadership. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu and his coalition have won the elections. And Mr. Netanyahu has been been given about, I don't know, 30 days or so to form a government. So that's what we are witnessing in in Israel. The Israelis have the same kind of um, Westminster parliamentary, Westminster-inspired parliamentary system that we have in India, which is an offshoot, which is a copy, essentially, in a a way, of the British parliamentary system, which inherently is an unstable democratic system. You know, leadership can change anytime and all that. So that's what Israel is dealing with. Now, yes, so Mr. Netanyahu seems to be back in the saddle. He seems to be back in control, possibly, of Israel, of the leadership. 
and yeah we we have uh, india israel cooperation india israel is planning to open two centers of ex- excellence agricultural in in kashmir jammu and kashmir and the pakistanis are making you know threats and all that yeah so uh, the question is will india israel ties keep on improving and remain strong and india israel defense cooperation other things as well will this remain strong despite deteriorating india us ties and the implicit assumption or implicit question in this is that israel's foreign policy is a reflection or extension of us foreign policy which it is to a large extent through no fault of israel's israel is a small nation it was recreated uh, it was recreated uh, when was it 1948 or thereabouts yeah in the 1940s uh, and it's been under siege essentially from its neighbors ever since um so the israelis they have a significant diaspora in the us i think the number of jews in the us is 7 or 8 million there's a lot of support to israel from there uh and israel the, this entire the entire situation in the middle east let's take a look at the map of the middle east just you know uh for clarity let's take a look at the map of the middle east and see where israel is uh right so this is the middle east and this here is israel on the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea as you can see it has a lot of adversaries around it egypt jordan saudi saudi arabia syria lebanon and uh, not far away you have turkey and so on so all the arab nations and, uh, and turkey is not an arab nation obviously but yeah so israel is has always been under siege ever since it was recreated reformed yeah uh so israel the entire situation in the middle east the straight line nations artificial nations all that it has been designed or created by the west in such a way that the entire region stays essentially permanently in turmoil in conflict the middle east has been in crisis for decades essentially ever since the end of the second world war more or less one conflict one problem after the other and it's it's been designed to be that way now israel to a large extent its foreign policy is indeed an extension of us foreign policy to a to a large extent that is true but the israelis do not see themselves as a vassal state of the, of the us the israelis see them israel as a nation sees itself in a way like india sees itself as a civilizational state israel is way older than the united states israel is i would say slightly more than 3000 years old if you look at the the oldest records of the jewish people i think it's it's found in the in, in an inscription in egypt in one of the pharaonic inscriptions in egypt that dates back to slightly more than 3000 years so the jewish people have been around for a long time at least 3000 years and uh, they lived in this region which is currently which is now called israel yeah that's it's there's a whole history behind it but then the romans destroyed israel they destroyed judea they forced uh, lots of jewish people out of israel they be- that became the wandering jewish diaspora which settled down in parts of europe and then there was the 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 islamic expansion into this region the ottoman expansion um there was saladin and so many people because of which the the jewish people were forced to essentially uh leave this region so for the longest time there was no israel and then the nation was recreated in the first half of the 20th century 
So Israel has a long history. They, they, the Jewish people uh, are very uh, proud of that. And because of that, they have their own vision of what the future should be like. And that is not the same. That's not entirely the same as what the U.S. would like them to be. Whenever the Democrats are in power, there's a lot of conflict between Israel and the U.S. The relationship between Barack Obama, Obama and uh, Bibi Netanyahu was very strained. It was very cold and, and uh, you know, it was not a good relationship. So whenever the Democrats are in power, there are problems within between in the in the Israel-US relationship. So the Israelis they do conform to to US diktats in, in a variety of ways from the foreign policy perspective, but they also have to us to, to some extent an independent foreign policy. And India and Israel, the national interests of these two nations, they converged to a significant extent. And that's why the Israelis, they would like that nation to exist for the, for the longest time. And for that to happen, they need strong allies and cooperation. They need cooperation from nations like India. It would be best, it would be good for both nations that way, you know. So, um, so despite, I would say that despite the uh, deteriorating India-US relationship, I think the India-Israel relationship will remain strong, will remain positive, and is going to remain a, a good cooperative relationship. That's what I see, unless the US decides to go ahead and totally arm twist Israel, in which case the, U the Israelis may have to capitulate. But as long as the Americans don't try to arm twist the Israelis, as long as that doesn't happen, the, the India-Israel relationship will most likely remain strong uh, and 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 uh, cooperative so that's what i believe will happen but obviously time will tell if the india us relationship becomes so bad that the americans force israel to stop cooperating with india then things may change but unless that happens which seems to be somewhat unlikely right now uh, things will remain good between india and israel and that's what i hope Okay, Ayush says, Heartland is occupied by Russia. Then why is it not a superpower? <laughs> okay, so this is about the uh, Mackinder's Heartland theory, uh, which is something which I spoke about, uh, I think, during, during the last episode of the Indian interest. So let's take a look at the map and understand what this is. So according to the uh, British academic geostrategist, whatever you want to call him, uh, Mackinder, according to him, uh, the world island is made up of essentially Eurasia, yes, Eurasia, and uh, the heartland is the region from the Volga, Volga to to essentially uh, the Yangtze River, which means it is the region that has traditionally been part of the Russian Empire, which was then later the USSR, and which is now mostly Russia. Yes, so this was a theory put forth by Halford Mackinder, who. Uh, wrote it in an article, I think, in the very early 20th century. So we have the world island, and then you have the interlinked continents of, uh, uh, which is the interlinked continents of Europe and Asia. Uh, you have Africa, and then you have the offshore islands like the British islands, the islands of Japan and all that. And the outlying islands are North America, South America, and Oceania, which is uh, Australia and all that. So according to Mackinder, the pivot area, the most in important area in the world is the heartland, which is from the Volga to the Yangtze rivers. Yes, the Himalayas to the Arctic, that, that part of Eurasia. It is 
what is currently Russia, more or less. And this region contains about 50% of the world's resources, raw minerals, raw materials, minerals, petroleum products, oil, gas, metals, agriculture, everything. You need to indefinitely sustain a nation and a large military. And this heartland is protected by, it is protected uh, from sea power by the ice in the north, the ice in the north, this region, and by mountains and deserts in the south. So it is very well protected. And Mackinder said that whoever rules Eastern Europe commands the heartland, and whoever commands the heartland commands the world island. And whoever rules the world highland island commands the world. So the key to the heartland is Eastern Europe. And the key to Eastern Europe is Ukraine. And that is the source of the conflict that we are witnessing. NATO was trying to expand into Ukraine. Yes. So this is the heartland rimland theory. And there's a rimland theory as well. So China and India are rimland powers, according to this. Yeah. So China is a rim, rimland or rim world powers. Um so the question is, the heartland is occupied by Russia, so why is it not a superpower? Well, go back 20-30 years, the USSR was a superpower. Go back a century before that, the Russian Empire was a superpower. It was the most, it was the major power for the longest time, for a very long time in, in Europe until the, the ascendancy of the British Empire. So it is not enough to simply control the heartland. It is not enough. See, in the heartland, you have access to all the resources. You have access to energy like oil and and uh, petroleum products and gas. You have energy. Uh, you have access to all kinds of materials. You have lots of great fertile agricultural land, and you have this immense territory. So this is what the heartland gives you. But that's not enough to become a superpower. You need transportation. You need to construct roads railways, you need all the entire transportation infrastructure, you need the finance network, you need manufacturing, you need supply chains, you need to invest in engineering and technology, in the research and development, you need to invest in world-class education system, fundamental scientific research, you need to have a culture of innovation, you need to have a culture of meritocracy, you need, uh, the demography needs to be taken care of, there has to be social cohesion, there needs to be pride in the nation and its culture, there has to be a strong national vision, you need a very powerful leadership, strong leadership. You need political stability. And to safeguard all of this, you need a powerful military. That's what makes a superpower. So the United States, for the longest time, it was, it was, it was, it was inhabited by the Native Americans. They did not create a superpower. But the, the Europeans, the Anglo-Saxons, they conquered the 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 north american continent they got rid of the natives more or less and they created the superpower so it's not enough to have the territory you have to build all this on top of the territory so when this ussr broke up in the 1990s all that i spoke about was was absent the transportation infrastructure was there but the finance the economy became very bad right the political leadership was terrible boris yeltsin the drunkard yeah there was no political stability the the, the leadership was weak yeah, the the economy became. Uh, I mean, it 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 crumbled. When when your economy is not strong, you can't have a powerful military. You can't have a great education system. You can't have uh, uh, you know uh, research and development in science and technology and engineering, in innovation, all those things. So that's what went wrong. And now the Russians are trying to recreate that. So it is not enough to occupy the heartland. You have to build on top of it. You know, to, you have to create this wonderful top-of-the-line system. Only then will you have the ability to 
potentially transform yourself into a superpower. I hope that answers the question, Ayush. Suhas says, when I was searching about the heartland theory, I also came across the rimland theory. Won't having control over a majority of the rimland from Iran to parts of Thailand be India's best interest since we dream of being a superpower? Um, once again, let's take a look at the map. So the rimland is this entire region for the region of Japan. No, Japan is the outlying islands, one of the outlying islands. But China, uh, Southeast Asia and India, this is all the rimland, yes. So uh, the rimland, according to Mackinder, is vulnerable to the heartland power and the ocean power, which is US and NATO. So it's because it's exposed to both these uh, both these major powers. Anyhow, that's the theory. Now, the rimland, I mean, if you look at China versus India, China is encircled by the three island chains. One island chain is the uh, Japanese islands in Taiwan. Then you have the Philippines and the, the other islands. And then you have the Marianas and uh, the third island chain. There are three island chains that prevent, that essentially shackle China and prevent it from becoming a major naval power. And these island chains are controlled by the US. When it comes to India, there is no such constraint, right? So India is a rimland power. India has access. India occupies this God-gifted commanding position over the entire Indian Ocean region. India has always been a maritime power for the past 10,000 years. Yes? So, I think India should really focus on naval power and on naval aerial power as well. India has these unsinkable aircraft carriers, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and the Lakshadweep Islands. We potentially also in the future could have a very ex excellent um, mutually beneficial relationship with Sri Lanka as well in the future. We have the Maldives as well, with which we could have the same kind of relationship. So India is potentially a great rimland power if it can create the economy that can sustain a major military that can sustain its interests, its strategic interests in this area. We uh, don't need to occupy Iran and parts of Thailand, like you're mentioning. I mean, India has always been a major power without doing that. Uh, India in the past did indeed occupy the entirety of Southeast Asia up to the Philippines once, as far as we know in its history, uh, which was about a thousand years ago under the rule of the great Chola Empire, the uh, Rajaraj and Rajendra Chola. But uh, you don't have to conquer and occupy places like Iran, uh, nations like Iran and Thailand. All you need to do is to have a good relationship with them. A good mutually respectful, mutually beneficial relationship. In that case, we can have access to the, those parts of the Rimland as well. So uh, you don't need to have control over it, but you need to have access to it because of a good relationship with, with those nations. So yes, you are right. I See, does India dream of being a superpower? Lots of people, I mean, in the comments, I see it every almost every day. When is India becoming a superpower? So yes, Indians are now aspiring. The Indian population, especially the youngsters, are now aspiring uh, to see, the, the aspiration is to see India becoming a superpower soon, maybe in the next 20 years, maybe definitely within our lifetimes, yes. Does the Indian leadership want to see India being a superpower Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We, there are no pronouncements uh, as such from the leadership, and it is always wise not to, uh, not to, not to talk about your long-term ambitions and aspirations and hopes. Uh, but India, 
historic the india's historical position has been of the world's largest economy for the past 10000 years essentially and if you look at the study of the past 2000 years of from from the uh, what's his name uh, angus madison right so he published his his very influential uh, study of the world's economy in the past 2000 years in india until the 1700s was the world's largest economy it uh, accounted for at least a third of the entire world's gdp right and in the past it would have been even more than that so india historically has been always the number one economic power and at times it's been the world's major military power as well from various in in various times for instance during the the, the kushan empire later during um, the Gupta Empire, the Karkota Empire, the Chola Empire, and so on and so forth. So there have been times when India, and obviously the Mauryan Empire as well. So India is a potential superpower. India is definitely already, to some extent, a great power. One of the three or four great powers in the world, maybe the three great powers. And in the future, it could be a superpower if India plays its cards right. And I would say that, that the key to becoming a superpower in the next 20 to 50 years is to focus on the maritime element, on the sea, on the rim. India is a rimland power. India commands the entire Indian Ocean. So India should leverage that God-gifted position that it has. In that, if it does, then so, so India needs to invest in a powerful navy. India needs to develop the unsinkable aircraft carriers, which is the Andaman Dekobar Islands and the Lakshadweep Islands. And India should also invest in a powerful coast guard in, in a powerful and extensive uh, merchant navy, which can serve a dual purpose. That's what the Chinese are doing. So learn from our adversaries. So yeah, that's the answer. Okay, this is a question I'm not taking for a while, but I see it every single day. People ask me this question <laughs> every day. Saurabh, Nikhil and Swarup Vaidya, our defense minister said that we will soon acquire the regions of Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Is there any chance of China involving in the support of Pakistan militarily? The second question is, Mr. Rajnath Singh indirectly spoke about taking back POK. Including this in mind, if we see India is building an airbase near the Pakistan border, there's an accidental fire of the, of the Brahmos missile into Pakistani territory. And there are Air Force exercises currently happening near the Pakistan border. Is the Pak-India war about to happen in the next 10 years for POK? And will we really take back POK soon? Why did the army announce that? Are they really going to attack? Should, shouldn't they be keeping it a secret? Whatever plans you have, you should always keep them a secret. And whatever you talk about should not give away your real plans. So what did Mr. Rajnath Singh, our defense minister, say? He said that POK will come. Have some patience, it will come soon enough. That's what he said. He did not give a timeline. He did not, he did not announce that next week we are launching, in, uh, uh, launching a liberation uh, exercise or liberation maneuver of POK. No such thing has been announced. He said, have patience, POK will return to India soon enough. That's what he said. It is a general statement. If you actually are planning to do that, you never ever announce it. Which means there are no plans currently <laughs> to make a move on POK. Please understand that. It's not going to happen next week, next month or next year if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe sometimes you do a double bluff. In cricket, if you want to bowl a bouncer, 
you put a guy on the square leg boundary and make it look like the to the batsman like you know you're going to bowl a yorker and then you actually bowl a bouncer so yeah there could be a bluff there could be a double bluff there could be a triple bluff we don't know but i don't see india making a move to take back and reunify pok with india in the immediate future but obviously it is definitely on the cards in the medium to long term it's going to happen it's going to happen nobody no power no force in the world can stop this from happening from india reunifying re pok with india and liberating the rest of the pakistani uh, temporary pakistani provinces from the tyranny of the pakistani army it's going to happen yeah uh, so yes we are building air bases near the pakistan border why because we should we, we we do it because we can and because we should so we are doing it it doesn't necessarily mean anything yeah uh, there has been an accidental firing of the brahmos missile which inadvertently went into pakistani airspace and crashed into pakistani territory which um, was an accident accident you know it it happens sometimes a nuclear capable uh, supersonic cruise missile and there are air force exercises which will which happen regularly you go to any water area you will see fighter planes buzzing around at supersonic speeds sonic booms dro dro dropping sonic booms booms everywhere it doesn't mean that we going to imminently uh retake pok um so yeah so uh this is just a general statement obviously it creates a lot a lot of excitement in various quarters of the indian population various parts of the indian population it when it happens it will be very exciting it will be very fast but it's not happening soon as far as i can see uh will the chinese get involved in supporting pakistan militarily when india reacquires pok it depends on a whole lot of factors if we do it now the chinese will most likely want to get involved they will most likely want to get involved and so these are the calculations these are the different parameters you need to look at before you make any move when you launch a military operation ideally you want to launch the military occupation when you are 100% certain of winning and when you are certain that your casualties will be less you don't want to take lots of casualties and you want to win ideally you want to win without fighting ideally you want to see pakistan give up pok voluntarily ideally fighting without fighting like bruce lee said so that's the ideal situation so as long as, as the china factor is there as long as long as the us factor is there india will not make a move on pok india will make its move on pok when the situation is advantageous when the time is right and that time is not right now right now the us will not want india to take back pok because if we take back pok we have direct access to afghanistan then we can have direct access to central asia through afghanistan that would be extremely advantageous for russia as well it would be great for afghanistan as well that would not be great for the long term american uh, objectives in the region right uh, it would give russia access to to uh, warm water ports in india which would totally upend the world order in very short time, in a very short amount of time so uh, if india tries to take back puk right now the americans will try to prevent that through a variety of means even the pakistan even the chinese will try to do that which is why now is not the right time in my opinion obviously i could be wrong and tomorrow we could see 
POK being liberated, in which case I'll eat my words. But yeah, that's what I think right now. It's it's a little early for us to take back POK, but it will happen sooner rather than later. It will happen. Okay, Mazar Chachar says, there was an assassination attempt on Mr. Imran Khan during his long march. Who do you think was behind this assassination attempt? And where do you see Pakistan in the next 10 years, keeping in view the current political and economic crisis? And Bye Bye says, what's your take on Imran Khan being shot at or shot? Was that a false flag or was it was it like, like a real assassination attempt? Um, do you think he is the one going to prove the temporary nation future? Okay. Um, who do I think was behind the assassination attempt? Was this a false flag operation or was it a genuine assassination attempt? Um it's hard to tell, but see, if you look at what happened to Benazir Bhutto, it was a very similar kind of situation. She was doing this public rally and she was shot and she was shot in the head by somebody at al- almost nearly point blank range. Somebody just walked up to her and, and shot her in the head. I think there were multiple gunshots and then there was a bomb blast as well to create confusion. So um, something similar seems to have happened in the case of Mr. Imran Khan. Right? Now, if if you are a professional professional assassin, you're not gonna miss from from close range. And if you if you're standing on the ground and you're sh- shooting at you're firing at somebody who's on a higher at a higher level than you, you're not gonna end up shooting that person in the leg, which kind of makes it look fishy. That why was he only shot in the leg? I mean, the the when a person you know when when a person is shot in battle or in any other situation, the odds are that that person will be shot in the torso, the chest or in the abdomen because that is the largest part of the body. The arms and legs are very much smaller targets. So if you're shot in that, it, it's, it's kind of fishy. It's like somebody wanted to shoot you there only so that you don't get, you know, killed. Typically, if you're shot in the arm or the leg, you'll survive that. You'll lose blood and you may need an operation. You may need, um, you know, corrective surgery to your bone or whatever in case it is clipped. But overall, it's not a fatal wound. So either this was a false flag operation to make it look like somebody wants to kill him and maybe to garner sympathy for him. That is one possible scenario. The other possibility is that the uh, the assassin was an amateur and that person or persons genuinely goofed up and Mr. Imran Khan got lucky. These are the two possibilities. I don't know who could be behind the assassination attempt Obviously, he was the he is the former prime minister. He was evicted, ousted, which cannot happen without the connivance and the approval of the Pakistani deep state, which is the ISI and the army, mainly the army and the ISI, and also the the uh, the foreign uh, the 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 foreign ministry or whatever the, the bureaucracy, you know, the permanent establishment. So it it uh, Mr. Imran Khan was removed from power. It, this removal could only have been done with the approval of the Pakistani army, ISI and deep state. And we know the shift that's happened in Pakistan. For, for the last decade or so, they were calling China their iron brother. But now you're seeing a resurgence of interest in Pakistan from the US. And the US has way deeper pockets and a much bigger stick than the Chinese do. Which means that Pakistan is now a proper U.S. vassal state all over again. So, so most likely, the odds are that Mr. Imran Khan was removed from power at the behest of the U.S. It all happened after his his visit to Russia, 
on in 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 on the same day that mr putin launched the invasion of ukraine which was very bad optics yeah and maybe that was all done on purpose to to make it easier for the pakistanis to remove imran khan or whatever so in case it is in, in so in case the deep state the army the isi views mr imran khan as a long term threat to their ambitions and to their plans then maybe they want to eliminate him that's that's a possibility and maybe it's being done at the behest of some foreign powers also perhaps who knows so that is one possibility the other possibility is that this was some local disgruntled element who wanted to kill mr imran khan maybe that person was an amateur or maybe this was something done by from 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 sources close to mr imran khan himself perhaps to perhaps garner sympathy for him among the pakistani awam the pakistani janta the population these are three possibilities that i can think of i don't know which one is correct um some possibilities uh, have a higher probability but we're not quite sure and most likely we won't know but uh, but he has survived and uh, good for him good for him so yeah and uh, the other question is where do i see pakistan in the next 10 years keeping in view the current political and economic crisis see pakistan was created to divide the people of the indian subcontinent it was created by the uk to further its geopolitical long term ambitions and ge- that's what it was and once the crown was passed on from the uk to the us the us has used pakistan to further its geopolitical uh, its geostrategic objectives in the indian subcontinent region and overall in eurasia one trouble spot is the middle east which is permanently in crisis the other trouble spot they have created the west is the indian subcontinent which is divided artificially and uh, where all these tensions are periodically inflamed so the india pakistan thing has, has always been there since 1947 1948 right so as long as these powerful nations essentially the us earlier it was china as long as the us sees pakistan as a value, valuable asset as long as that happens pakistan will continue to exist if the us loses interest then maybe the chinese will take over so so, so essentially pakistan has been created by foreign powers to divide india and it has been propped up ever since the various military dictatorships these dictatorships have been propped up and sustained by foreign powers the moment foreign powers stop sustaining pakistan pakistan will implode the problem is it's a, it's a nuclear armed state we don't want to have a nuclear armed somalia you know chaos that's the last thing we want i think yeah so so that's the that's the situation so i think as long as the us props up the pakistanis pakistan will survive will keep on existing the people will survive somehow in the army and the isi and all the uh, the top brass will keep getting richer they will buy properties in london in the us they will send their children to study there and they will have fat bank accounts over there and when the time is right they will leave the country so as long as the foreign nations foreign powers keep on propping up pakistan it will exist will this go on for the next 10 years perhaps odds are that pakistan may not survive 10 years like i have said so many times i have nothing against the people of pakistan i wish them well i wish them prosperity i wish their children and their descendants prosperity and and safety but pakistan is a terrorist nation and this nation needs to be uh, dealt with appropriately hopefully without any any military 
military force without any violence hopefully but yeah that's what it is it's a terrorist nation it's been the epicenter of global terrorism for the lo- longest time since the 1980s at least so pakistan needs to be dealt with maybe it may last 10 years but uh, its long term survival is highly highly improbable right uh, swastika says shouldn't pakistani punjab and sindh also be a part of india as they were so before partition if partition hadn't happened those areas would have been part of india but you but i say that those two regions should be independent like balochistan why do i say this shouldn't pakistani punjab and sindh be part of india look pakistan is an integral part of india it's always been part of india for for the longest time 10000 plus years in the future it will again become part of india but right now it is not practical even if pakistan breaks up even if pakistan breaks up right now it is not practical to reintegrate those parts uh, like sindh and balochistan and and pa- pakistan uh, punjab etc with india right now why is that because the population for the past 3 4 5 6 generations has been totally radicalized and they have been taught to hate india and indian culture they have been fed this venom from the time they are born so if you look at 100 pakistanis i would say 90% of them would have this strong hatred and any and animosity very strong animosity towards india and it's not possible to reintegrate people with that mindset so once whenever it happens that pakistan is 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 uh, balkanized and sindh becomes independent punjab becomes independent balochistan becomes independent pashtunistan maybe go back to afghanistan once this happens there once the the evil shadow of the isi and the pakistan army is is taken away from the poor hapless suffering people of pakistan then it will take another 3 4 generations for for that mindset to perhaps go away only then can we reintegrate those regions with uh, with india so it will happen in the long run but it will it is not advisable to do it immediately so there should be a cooling off period maybe 50 years or so and and then things may be better you know so that's why those regions need to be independent for some time at least obviously sindh punjab balochistan all even afghanistan of course was part of india let's talk about the region of pakistan right now sindh is obviously an integral part of india india is incomplete without the sindhu river the sindhu river is one of the two great ancient rivers of india one of the three four <laughs> one of the four or five great ancient rivers of india which were at the heart of indian civilization one is the ganga the other is the yamuna the other two are the saraswati and the sindhu the saraswati no longer is with us she chose to leave that's her choice but the sindhu india is incomplete without the sindhu river the indus river some parts of it do flow through india in northern india in ladakh etc very beautiful river but yes the whole of the river has to eventually be returned to the fold of india it will happen but not yet it is not practical if pakistan breaks up to immediately reunify reunify those regions or those territories with india it will take time we have to be practical okay what is this from um, hind se tavi putra okay uh, the question is 
I'd like to hear your comments on the great Nicobar development project in terms of security, economy, environmental impact, impact on indigenous tribes, Kopura crop, Kopura crop. Um, that's in Thai. So, uh, what is this uh, great Nicobar development project? Let's take. A, I mean, I, I hope you all know where the Nicobar Islands are, where the great Nicobar Island is. You have the Andaman and Nicobar Islands over here, the archipelago. And the great Nicobar Island, I believe, is this one. This is Little Andaman. Ah, okay, it's here. This is the great Nicobar Island. So the, so the northern islands are the Andaman Islands, and the southern islands are the Nicobar Islands. And this one here is the great Nicobar Island, uh, which is the southern uh, southernmost part of India. It's about 200 or so kilometers away from Indonesia, which means Indonesia is our neighboring country, in case you don't know. So there is going to be this massive not massive, but a significant uh, development project on this island. Now, let's take a look at a news article that tells us a little bit more about that. Let's remove this from the screen and let's put up that news article. Where is it? Okay, this is it. Uh, let me put it up on the screen and then let's discuss what's happening. There. It's, it's a very important project. So, environmental path cleared for great nicobar mega project this is this news article is from the 10th of october which is about a month or so ago so it's a major infrastructure and tourism project uh, which has received the green signal from the union environment ministries committee or whatever yeah uh, there's going to be ecotourism there's going to be tourism coastal tourism green and recreational defense ictt airport all those things so this shows you where it's going to be, right? This is the, uh, there are a couple of national parks there, all named after foreigners for, for some reason. And uh, no, I would not like to subscribe. Okay, the, here it is. So the, the red region or the orange region over here on the map is where the project is going to be. Uh, that's the project area. So we're going to have a, a port, obviously. There's going to be an airport which will have a dual it's going to be a dual use airport which is going to have a, a military use and civilian use as well there are many airports in india which are dual use airports many of them for instance i believe uh, the airport there is an airport in assam the silchar airport which is a military airport and it's also used for civilian civilian uh, aircraft civilian flights uh, then the lay airport in ladakh if you land there you will see military planes all over the place so there are many dual-use airports in India. So this airport is also going to be a dual-use airport. There's going to be a, a major port that will be built over here, a container terminal and various other things. So why is, is this significant? So uh, like I've said in this live stream itself, and I've said many times before, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands and the Lakshadweep Islands also need to be developed. These are unsinkable aircraft carriers. We need to develop infrastructure there. We need to develop military infrastructure there. We need to de develop air force and naval infrastructure there. We can use them for uh, as, as major transshipment ports, uh, which could kind of bypass the Colombo port, which is the only major transshipment port in the in the. Uh, Indian subcontinent and all that. So it's great for the Indian economy. It's great for Indian security. It it will ensure that India has a major security military presence in this region. We will be able to, uh, we could potentially uh, have a bunch of Sukhoi or other aircraft over there, maybe even strategic bombers. You could have uh, 
Indian Navy destroyers and submarines based over there, potentially, possibly. I am speculating. I don't have any information. I'm just telling you. Yeah. Ideally, we want to do that. We want to have pods of, of uh, area denial missiles, you know, A to AD bubbles around this region so that if the Chinese try to uh, enter the region with, with malified intentions, we could deal with them appropriately. So all this needs to happen. So clearly this is a step in that direction. It's a very welcome step. It's a very good step. I I commend the government of India for taking this step. There will be all kinds of opposition. So let me, let's take a look. Uh, I showed you that, this article. Let me show you a whole different article. Uh, so this article was from a publication called, what's it called? Monga Bay or whatever. Let me show you a different article about the same uh, same project. Here's what, there's a different perspective. And this is from the Hindu, frontline, the Hindu.com. Massive infrastructure project threatens the great Nicobar Island. So in their opinion, this is a great threat to the Nicobar Islands biodiversity. It's stripping the protected uh, status of, of some parts of the island. And uh, yeah, there are these monkeys, macaques and various other animals over there. The, the tree shrew, which could be threatened. Turtles, Olive, Ridley, turtle, hatchling, and all that, anthropogenic threats, threats to the to the local people, and so on. So that's what this this article is trying to tell us. It's an alarmist article. It, it's telling us this is a terrible project. So what's the truth? Any development project will have a certain environmental impact. Yes, that is true. But it is necessary for India's national security. And the government, I believe, is committed to, to reforest another part of the island or any other or some other place in to make up for the for the lost forest cover. So it is unfortunate, but it has to happen. Yes, it will it will impact some of the local uh, tribes, people who have been living for a very long time on the island, but it is necessary. It is necessary for the long-term national security and for the for the continued survival essentially of india and for india's long term ambitions yeah to become a major world power once again it has to happen so it's going to be great for for the national security of india from the air force perspective from the navy perspective from the area denial and, and missile launching perspective you know it gives you if you have a bunch of missiles there we have a whole lot of missiles. We have a whole bouquet of missiles of various characteristics. We have the supersonic BrahMos missile, which will come in an extended range as well. We have cruise missiles like the Nirbhai, which is under development. We have various ballistic missiles. You launch things from there, they're going to have a whole different range. And so it's great for the security of the nation. It's going to be great for the economy because it's going to be a transshipment hub. So that will bring in lots of revenue for India. There will be an environmental impact, which is which is inevitable. It will force some of the local indigenous tribes people to have to move to a different region. I'm sure the government will do the right thing for them, and 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 give them a different place to live in on the same island. The island is quite large, so I am sure all of this will be taken care of by the government. But overall, from the from the perspective of the Indian national interest, it's a very good development, and I'm really happy to see this. So that's what I have to say about this.
okay so this <laughs> this is from twitter so uh, i had said on twitter in response to somebody else's tweet that australia is not a us ally australia is us property so in response to my tweet this uh, gentleman called shardul sharma says that australia is also one of the richest places on earth and the australians don't have any issues being us property so chill chill bro chill chill so this shardul sharma sharma sounds like an indian person maybe he is an australian citizen i'm not sure but he has decided to speak on behalf of the australian people and he's saying that it's okay to be us property as long as you're rich so chill now here's a different comment from an actual australian person he says that uh, it's from paul rankin he says that australia has a permanent rotation of about 15000 us troops in case we australians decide we don't like their co- corporations what is this australian gentleman saying he is saying that australia is under permanent us military occupation uh and if you look at it deeper australia is essentially us property so let's take a look at some of the see some evidence of that yeah um so this is an article from an australian news site yes it says that it says us military bases in australia protecting us or putting us at risk the us has a network of secretive military bases across australia and something it could plunge australia into a war the us is strengthening a network of secretive military bases across australia and so on and so forth yeah and it's got some some images of that let's take a look at a different article put that on the screen uh the asia pacific journal the us military presence in australia is asymmetric alliance corp cooperation and its alternatives it says that as in japan and korea this involves australia governments identifying australian national interests with those of the us the integration of the australian military military forces organizationally and technologically with us forces and a rapid and extensive expansion of an american military presence in australia itself so once again this is alluding to us military occupation of australia let's take a look at how many military bases the us has in australia what is it true so this is a wikipedia article a standard disclaimer wikipedia is not always reliable we have to be use it very carefully if we do use it so australia pine gap naval communication system harold e holt robertson barracks and so on and so forth it has a whole bunch of bases that are listed over here but there are many more bases that are not listed as is evident from the other articles that we just saw uh let's take a look at one more article to drive home the point that we are trying to make this is this article over here it's uh once again from an australian news site us military plans for greater presence in australia as it confronts chinese china's power and so so plans for us military upgrades of australian defense sites have been highlighted in a long awaited pentagon study and so on new rotational fighter and bomber aircraft deployments and so on so i think you get the point that i am trying to make that australia is under permanent us military occupation australia does not have an independent foreign policy and australia's 
economic and military policy is integrated with that of the US and its foreign policy is also integrated with that of the US, which means that Australia is an extension of the US. And if you look deeper into it, Australia is essentially owned by the US, even though technically it's owned by the British Crown, which means it is a property of King Charles III or whatever the whatever number he is, King Charles II. But de facto, if you look at it from the realistic perspective, Australia is owned by the US. So now uh, this fine gentleman, my, my friend Shardul over here, says that it's okay if it's owned, if it's US property. It's the, one of the richest places on earth. So chill. So what this gentleman is saying is that it's okay to be owned by somebody else as long as you are prosperous, you're rich, and you have a, a good life. So look at it like this. It's entirely possible for your country to be occupied by a foreign nation and yet for the people of your country to have prosperity. Look at Japan. Japan has been under permanent hardcore US occupation since 1945. It doesn't have an independent foreign policy. Its economic policy is dictated by the US. Its internal policy also to a large extent is dictated by the US to a large extent. And yet, Japan is the world's most technologically advanced nation. Its people are very prosperous compared to nations like India. Very rich, very high GDP per capita. They have complete financial freedom. They can choose to go and move anywhere in the world if they want. So individually, each individual in Japan is free. Each Japanese citizen is free and rich and prosperous. And yet the nation is enslaved by a foreign power. It is perfectly possible for, a, for a, an enslaved nation to have free people. So is that the right thing? Is that good? As long as I am free, as long as I am rich, and as long as I can do what I want, I am perfectly fine with my nation being enslaved by another. This is called slave-mindedness. This is the slave mentality that people talk about. So this is what we are witnessing here. It's unfortunate that so many Indians suffer from this slave mentality. So unfortunate. And that's why I keep saying, please raise your standards. We need higher standards in India. So that's what I have to say about this. Yeah. Okay. Saurabh says, how did the Britishers mold the Varna Jati system into the caste system? We know that caste comes from the root word casta, which is a Portuguese word. What's the difference between casta and the Varna Jati system? And Rahul says, <laughs> Rahul says, oh, what a bullshit you are speaking, Abhijit. If the caste system was invented by the British, then why do the Nepalese follow the system, even though they were never colonized by the British? And one of the reasons for the creation of Sikhism is the caste issues in Hinduism. Check your facts first, Abhijit. You're talking bullshit. This is a problem I, I face almost every day. And no matter how many facts I put forth, people are unwilling to, to see. Sikhism was not created in a response to a, some imagined caste system in Hinduism. Sikhi was a response to foreign imperialism and foreign occupation of India by the, by the Turks. That's, that was the purpose of the, of, the, of the creation of Sikhi or what we call Sikhism. It has nothing to do with so-called caste system. The Nepalese don't follow a caste system, they follow the Varnajati system. Now let me once again put some facts in case some of you may understand it. I, I know that most of my audience is really intelligent, which is why they watch the, the Ask Abhijit show. But uh, in case there are some newcomers or some some others as well. Let me put some facts. Let's let's take a look at this. 
So if I show you an article or a book written by an Indian, you will not believe it. This is part of the mental colonization. If I show you something, an article or a book written by an Indian, you will not believe it. So I have to show you articles and books written by foreigners. That's the unfortunate mental colonization that we've seen in India. So here's one. The Western Foundations of the Caste System. It's by Martin Farrick, Duncan Jalki, and, and two Indians, right? So this is a book I would recommend that you read because it talks about the Western foundations of the caste system. Let me show you a review of this book, right? That's a book summary as well. I'll put it on the screen so that you can study it yourself. I would request you to do some reading of your own. Yes, this is a book summary. You can look it up online. You know what the title is. Western Foundations of the Caste System, and it, it's a four-part review. This is the first part of, the, of that review. This is one article. Please study this. You need to do some reading of your own to understand things. You cannot simply blindly believe what you have been taught, which you have not really studied on your own. So this is something I would re recommend that you read. Now let me give you some more references. There is another book. Once again, I'm giving you a foreign author because you will not trust Indian authors because you have this inferiority complex, some of you. This book is called Casts of Mind, Colonialism and the Making of Modern India. It's by Nicholas B. Dirks, who is a very prominent and, and, and very well-respected American academic. Yes, it's called Casts of Mind, Colonialism and the Making of Modern India. Let me show you some more. I, I would like you to read this, read all of this that I'm telling you. Don't trust me. Don't don't fact check what I am sh telling you. And how will you fact check by looking at all, by reading all this, by studying all this? Here's a different article. It's uh, it's by a person called Akbar Dosanj, caste as a colonial creation. The discussion around UK legislation on caste dis discrimination is too quick to forget how much it was Britain which invented the system in the first place, the so-called caste system. The words of the British superintendent of the 1921 census are still poignant. Point today, we pigeonholed everybody by caste. And if we could not find a true caste for them, we labeled them with the name of the hereditary occupation. We deplore the caste system and its effect on social and economic problems. But we, the British, are largely responsible for the system we deplore. Do you, know to, do you see this? Let me show you some more. It's so sad that I have to keep on doing this every single time and people just don't understand. This is an article called The Indian Caste System in the British. I would like you to read this article, please. It says, I'm just showing you a small excerpt. Moreover, as will be seen later in this paper, it appears that the caste system extant in the late 19th and early 20th century has been altered as a result of British actions, so that it increasingly took on the characteristics that were ascribed to it by the British. You see that? Please study this article in its entirety. You want to understand things, you have to do some research, some work of your own. Here's one more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a whole bunch of data at you today because I'm tired of this nonsense. Do you trust the BBC? Yes, you trust the BBC. I'm, I'm sure it's not Indian, right? So you, it's it's from from the UK. So you have to trust it. Viewpoint: How the British reshaped India's caste system. Yeah, and here's an excerpt. Um, in a new book, "The Truth About Us," whatever I show 
how the social categories of religion and caste as they are perceived in modern day india were developed during the british colonial rule at a time when information was scarce and the colonizers power over information was absolute so once again it tells you that the british created the so called caste system right okay let me show you some more yeah let's uh, let's see uh, let's see the greek perspective because the, the, the british perspective is not enough i'm sure for you all so this is uh, the 300 bc book indica by megasthenes dispels caste theories of india so what does it tell us right uh, what's point number 5 the indians this is what megasthenes the the greek ambassador to india during the mauryan times this is what he said this is what he wrote the indians generally were divided into seven categories the wise men which is interpreted as brahmins then the farmers the herdsmen the artisans the soldiers the overlookers and the government officials including army and navy officers there were seven categories not castes 2 and 1/2000 years ago there was no caste system right there were seven classes not four not four seven classes that's what the greeks found in india let me show you more let me show you more come on let's do this let's do it properly today this is an inscription from birchabalitika uh, tila agra sikri about a thousand years ago okay there was no caste there was only gotra 1000 years ago let's see what this inscription says there is an image of the inscription and there are translations into hindi and english om siddham the shrestis of sanchamara and bhallik bhallikya gotras installed the image of shri shruti devi saraswati in the habitat of the muni so and so forth and so on and so forth it does not mention any caste any so called caste in it only mentions gotra which means the lineage the lineage the family line let's see some more this is an article by dr david frawley he is an american he is a hindu so you you, you may not trust him perhaps right you need somebody who's not a hindu but le- let me show you show it to you anyway why varna is not caste this is by dr david frawley it's from about 6 years ago please read the article i'm not going to read it out over here so this is another reference that i'm offering you let's see some more let us see some more do you know that there were four divisions of society in china what does it remind you of four occupations four categories of the people was an occupation classification used in ancient china by confucian and legalist scholars yes and you find that later in its outside china in japan which <laughs> the so called japanese castes these were not castes but in english they call everything a caste this is the myopic world view of the west they are saying that the japanese also had castes these were not castes but they are calling the you know the nomenclature they are using is caste now you say that caste is bad because it's all about uh, hereditary occupations right yeah so what about the the english occupations england surnames they derived from occupations hereditary occupations most of them originated in medieval towns and villages in england like carter like hayward like thatcher smith taylor yeah boatwright cartwright shipwright wainwright turner goddard cowherd webb webster weaver dempster franklin knight marshall page squire chamberlain 
Duke, Earl, Pope, Priest, etc. These are all hereditary occupations that have been passed on from generation to generation, just like in India, in England. But in India, it's bad. In England, it's fine, right? Because hereditary passing on of anything is bad because that is the caste system, apparently. <laughs> but uh, I, I hope I have, I have given enough information for all of you to use your own intelligence to understand what the truth is about. Please do some reading of your own. Please do some deep study of, of your own. Don't fall prey to dogmatic thinking, which is accepting the results and, and the products of other people's thinking. Please think on your own. Please study things yourselves. Otherwise, don't come and say such things. Oh, what, <laughs> what bullshit you are speaking, Abhijit. I mean, come on. Come on. So, yeah, that's what I have to say about caste. And about Nepal, Nepal follows the Jati Varna system. Jati means whatever lineage you have, essentially Gotra. There are various Jatis. There are there's a whole bunch of Jatis, hundreds, maybe thousands of Jatis in, in, in the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. Jati in Varna. Varna means whatever occupation you have. So various Jatis would have different Varnas within them. It's a very complex system. The British could not understand it. That's why they oversimplified it into four castes. That's what they did. I think I have demonstrated, I have given you enough references. Please study them. Spend a few weeks reading all this. Only then will you understand the truth. It is very easy to, dis to misinform people by oversimplifying things. And then to counter the misinformation, you have to study need to spend lots of time studying. So in case you respect yourselves and would like to actually learn something, the truth, then please study this. That's what I would recommend and request you to do. <sighs> okay, Akshada says, why is China sending monkeys into space? And Samarth says, uh, Samarth is essentially answering the question, but asking a different question. Samarth says, China will be sending monkeys into space to see the outcomes of reproduction up there. What are your thoughts on this? And should India and the rest of the world do it without thinking about ethical issues? We need to explore space mining as well. Aerospace medicine will get a boom, boom in the future. So yeah, to answer Akshada's question, China is sending monkey, monkeys, is planning to send monkeys into space to see the effects uh, see how the environment of, of zero gravity or microgravity affects reproduction. So they intend those monkeys to reproduce in space. See, right now we are an earthbound species. We make very brief forays into earth orbit. Only, if, only a handful of people have been into earth orbit and only a handful of people have broken free of of, of uh, have broken free of Earth orbit and gone into moon orbit or on the surface of the moon. So, um, but eventually we would like to become a spacefaring species. For that, we would have to spend extended amount of amounts of time in space. And in the future, maybe we would need to reproduce in space as well, because reproduction reproduction is is essential to human to the survival of the human species. And monkeys are the are our closest relatives. I mean, the apes are even closer, but. Various monkeys also can serve the purpose. Their biology is very similar to that of or that of humans. So the Chinese want to want to see. So it means the Chinese are ambitious. They would like to see how it goes. What is the effect of microgravity or zero gravity on the reproductive process of of very closely uh, very cl species that are very close to us? Yeah. So it's all about the long term future. It's all about planning for the future. In the future, we would 
you would perhaps want to send human beings on long voyages across space maybe in the future to a different star system as well perhaps definitely to mars mars the gravity on mars is much lower than that on earth yes and so one way of seeing of seeing how it goes is to have monkeys reproduce in space and see what is the outcome what does it have any uh, does it have any deleterious effects on the viability of the fetus is the is the fetus is the child born normal or are there any defects what is the effect of so of of uh, cosmic rays and uh, solar radiation other radiation on on the mother on on the monkeys on the child all these things need to be looked at yeah ethical issues well china doesn't really care about ethical issues <laughs> um the americans also don't care about ethical issues they have sent monkeys into space they have various animals must have died in space the russians sent the first dog laika into space where she died um and so on yeah so you know and all all kinds of nations continue to conduct animal experiments animal experimentation which can be extremely cruel yeah so unfortunately we are the dominant species on the planet and we humans we would i mean if you if you look at it culturally from the indian cultural perspective we would never want to do this but other nations don't have any such qualms and that's how it goes so yes uh the chinese will find out what happens and hopefully we will learn something from that i mean i'm i'm sure they'll make the results public if not we'll see so yeah these are this is something that is the future and uh, so yeah so we do need to explore space mining which is going to happen perhaps in the next 100 200 years it's still in the far future but india needs to establish a presence in earth orbit a space station first of all we need to start our human space flight program we need to create our own space station we need to as soon as possible establish a presence on the moon as well step by step step by step yeah so yes india needs to catch up india has the ability the capabilities to do that but yeah we are kind of slightly behind right now but i'm sure we can catch up rapidly isro is a very capable organization as we know very well okay we are almost at the two hour mark i had a whole lot of other questions that i wanted to answer unfortunately i'm not able to answer them today because we have reached uh, almost the end of today's uh, live stream so i apologize to those people whose questions i had selected they will not know it but yeah sorry let me take some live chat questions as is our convention right so if you have any questions that we you would like to ask me which i which uh, we have not asked then you can ask me right now in the live chat and i will take a look i will answer maybe two or three questions uh yes yes isro is great i agree isro is wonderful and we are very proud of isro uh manohar singh bhai sir uh, give me 5 minutes then we'll do bye i'll take a few questions <laughs> uh okay prasad is asking about the iran hypersonic missile so the iranians have uh, declared that they have tested successfully a hypersonic uh, cruise missile ballistic missile i'm not sure it's it's obviously a cruise missile ballistic missiles are ultra hypersonic yeah but the reentry velocity is about mark 23 or so which is incredibly Uh, high velocity so i'm sure they're talking about a cruise missile of some kind which is a hypersonic missile good good for them did they get help from from somewhere we don't know uh two places from which they could have possibly got help one is china possibly and one could possibly be russia i'm not sure the russians would want to share such advanced technology with the parsi our parsi friends but maybe it's the chinese who did that because the chinese are investing big time in, in in iran 
a 40 billion plus dollar uh, deal they've signed recently and so on, like, like the, the past two, three years or so, maybe 2018, 2019, thereabouts. So, uh, or maybe they did it on their own, in which case, kudos to them. So, I- Iran is, is a very ambitious nation. Uh, the the Iranian government, I'm sure, w- would like to, in the long run, re-establish some form of the of the Persian Empire. So, yeah, they are a very ambitious nation and they uh, they they have good technology. They have been developing these drones, which are very effective. They have sold those drones to the Shahed, whatever number it is, drones. They sold a bunch of them to Russia and the Russians are using them in the conflict in Ukraine because they don't want to use the Air Force and so on. So, Iran is doing well. They are developing drones and they seem to have developed a hypersonic cruise missile. Good for them. Good for them. All right. Um, what else do we have? Uh, Chiranjeev says, let's try to start a movement of burning two books. My experiments by, with truth by Mr. Gandhi and Bharat Ek Khoj by Mr. Nehru. You know what? Um, uh, even bad things need to be preserved as an example of, of what bad is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, burning, which, see, if you burn books and if you ban books, you kind of forget your past. Your past may have been good, it may have been bad, especially if it's bad, we have to ensure you never forget it. So, I would say it would be kind of, I would I would venture to say that it would be kind of counterproductive to burn books or ban books. Keep them, preserve them as an example of the bad times that India went through. We had people like Mr. Gandhi, we had people like Mr. Nehru, who were not the most ideal, greatest, of course, you know how it is, you know, not the best examples of leadership. And these books uh, give us insights into their mindset. So it's something we should actually preserve and study because it gives you an insight into what went wrong with India in the past. Um, um, that's a beautiful rhino. Uh, this one here, yeah, it's, it's a great rhino. I got it from Assam. I had gone to Silchar, to NIT Silchar, where the wonderful people there presented me with this rhino, and I thought I'd put it over here because it's, it's a great, it's a great rhino. It's an Assamese rhino. Anybody from Assam? Great. All right, let's take maybe one more question. <laughs> Oktar says, "Who is better for India, Imran Khan or Shahbaz Sharif?" Um. See, the Pakistan Prime Minister, doesn't. it doesn't matter who he or she is, they are more or less powerless. And it's always the army and the ISI that essentially calls the shots. So it doesn't matter. See, Mr. Modi did not ever bother to even have a phone conversation with, with Mr. Imran Khan. Not even once, as, as, if I'm not mistaken. Because it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter who is the prime minister because that person is powerless. That person is nothing more than a puppet. So whether it's Imran Khan or Nawaz Sharif or Shabazz Sharif or whoever else it may be, it doesn't matter. They are all the same for India. Yeah. So that would be my answer. What would I say about China's recent aid to Pakistan? I have been saying that Pakistan is now a US vassal state. So why is the why are the Chinese giving aid to Pakistan? Well, they will try to fight the development and they will try to throw more carrots at the Pakistanis. They will not give up without a fight. And the Pakistanis, the kind of nation they are, they are always happy to get money from whichever place it comes. But it at the end of the day, it all depends on who has the bigger stick and who has the deeper pockets. Do the Chinese have deeper pockets than the Americans, than Uncle Sam? Not at all. 
Do the Chinese have a bigger stick than Uncle Sam? Once again, no. The Americans have the deeper pockets and the Americans have the bigger stick. So let the, let the Chinese throw some money, a few billion dollars once again in Pakistan, which is not a donation, which is, this, this aid, the so-called aid is actually a loan. It is additional debt that Pakistan is taking. It will have to repay that money. It's not aid. Right, so the Pakistanis are, deeping a digger, uh, are, are, are digging a deeper hole for themselves in form of more Chinese loans. And uh, that's just how it is. But at the end of the day, they're going to remain US vassals because now they are useful to the Americans once again. And that's where we are. All right, my dear friends, thank you for all the questions. Thank you for being on the live stream. Thank you very much. And uh, this is the end of today's live stream. I will see you very soon next week, Saturday, Sunday. Until then, take care and see you later. Bye-bye.